The world is wearied and bleak. The government has been exercising a little too much control over the people who, since this good news was declared, figured they were more or less free. But now, taxes are unbearable, small crime is punished strictly, and the boundaries between right and wrong are becoming blurred. The nation is run by a demagogue glutton of a man who doesn't care what he says or when he says it, just as long as it stirs emotions. The people who are leading the predominant religion are enraptured in scandal, and it seems like every other day, news is breaking of one who's taken down by the darkness that consumes the world. Everyone thinks that they have the right answer. Well, more right than the guy next to them, anyway. <laughs> this is a place in which certain groups of people have long expected that they would be delivered from their pain and their suffering by some flash of lightning, some roar of the sky, or some trumpet blast. We see that this is a place in which an entire culture hoped that God would come through for them, and yet hasn't. This is a place on the brink of hope. This is the story of all mankind. This is Bible Unbound. Let's explore. on this familiar scene of a hopeless and lost generation. We see a man named Zechariah, which unironically means God will remember, and he's tasked with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer incense on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And it is here where everything changes. For in that dark and dusty room, hope appears in the form of an angel. And this angel declares to Zechariah that from his line will come the prophesied Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And when, six months later, another messenger of the Lord appears to Mary in a small town called Nazareth, he tells her that from her womb, the Messiah will be born. And so we see that just maybe the Lord really hasn't forgotten about his people after all. And this makes Mary's song of praise, often called the Magnificat, all the more reminiscent of Hannah's prayer, that the Lord would raise up a king as in the days of the judges, that the Lord would raise up a man to deliver the people of God from the darkness that surrounds them in their current day. And not just the darkness that shrouds the Israelites, mind you, but all of humanity. We see this very theme play out through the humble birth of the snake crusher. 
When he's born in a feeding trough, and pagan astrologers from the east and rowdy shepherds from the fields come and pay homage to this perfect human child. And from his gentle birth to the start of his ministry, the baby boy named Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature amongst God and man, Luke tells us until the day of his baptism. Not a day of repentance for this perfect man, mind you, but a public declaration of God to humanity that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Son of Man, as was prophesied from the prophets of old. And just then, as if this theme wasn't clear enough, this perfected man is swept away into the trial that all humans must go through to choose right from wrong. The choice before him is this, to choose to trust in God or to trust in his own understanding. The word of God presented as this tree of life. And though, while this parry does end in victory for our man, the war is far from over, and the tale is just beginning. You see, our third chapter in the saga of Jesus' life is just beginning as, as he moves out from this space of temptation, a victor, mind you, against the ancient enemy, in the power and the presence of God. And, and he heals many and he preaches powerfully, but his most beautiful miracle is just starting as he calls 12 of his followers to be his disciples, which means students. And his students, they're not as you'd expect. <laughs> they're fishermen, common people, chosen to be fishers of men, as Luke says, and tax collectors, traitors to their own people. His disciples are among those who would not be considered righteous in the human world. But it seems as though this human is made for a different world, is bringing a different world. And as we see him performing uncanny miracles, casting out demons, forgiving sins, reconciling people back to God, we see that his will is perfectly aligned to the will of the Father of humanity. So when he begins to pronounce judgment on people and cities, it is as though we see him as this great prophet of God, uttering the words of God on behalf of God to the people of God. But they listen, unlike the prophets of old. And for nearly 10 chapters, Jesus continues performing these great miracles, telling these powerful parables, and each one details the profundity of what it means to be a human being in the kingdom of God. But not just to the Jews. We see Jesus also claiming Romans, Greeks, Gentiles as his followers. His kingdom is being built up not just by the family of Jacob, but by the family of of humanity, which makes his entry into Jerusalem all the more understandable. For you see, when the prophesied Savior of the world, the snake crusher, the warrior of God, the king, enters the holy city, Luke tells us that he weeps. He weeps because of all that humanity has done to itself, to creation and in many ways, 
to him. He weeps for all the ways that humanity has prostituted itself out to idols like, like sex and war and money, the pinnacle of which culminates in his very own house, the temple on the Jerusalem Mount. It should come as no surprise when he calls them wicked servants, a dead fig tree, a den of robbers. And though no one can seem to challenge his authority, it should also come as no surprise that the leaders of Jerusalem begin to plot his death right then and there. The fulfillment of the scriptures is coming to its climax. The snake is to be crushed, but if that is true, we've known since the beginning that his heel will be bruised. And so it was the night of Passover that he was betrayed. He was handed over to the snake by one of his very own, and his body was to be broken and his blood was to be shed. But as everyone thought, it would be like Joshua. I mean, they share the same name after all. Jesus would overthrow the wicked snake Rome like Joshua overthrew the wicked snake the Canaanites. But his body was not going to be pierced just for the family of Abraham. His blood needed to be shed for Rome too. For a far more sinister evil laid under the current of their power. It was about the sixth hour, Luke tells us. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And it was then, suddenly, that the earth quaked and the ground shaked and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And it is no surprise that Luke is the one that tells us of the centurion that saw what had taken place. And just then, this Gentile man praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And the whole earth was quiet. And all who followed him stood at a distance. His body was pierced. His blood was spilled to fulfill what was prophesied. And if this was the story of any man, of any person in human history, then Luke would have to end it here. For the enemy of God would have won his final blow. The enemy of God, death, sin, the snake, would have defeated the Son of Man. If this was the story of any person, then the disciples of Jesus from Nazareth would have hopefully had the wherewithal to run and to hide and to never show their faces again. But this isn't the story of just any human being. This is the story of the snake crusher. And if he is to be crushed, then his heel is to be bruised. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the perfected human being. And when humanity is perfected, death has no hold on them. 
When a human is in right relationship to God, just bent on their passion and love for the redemption of creation, for reconciliation, then death simply won't do. So on the first day of the week, at light's new dawning, when the grass was still wet with dew and they went to his tomb where he was laid, you'd think that they wouldn't have been so shocked to find an angel standing there, like we heard at the beginning of this tale, when God will remember. But they are, and they do. They don't see the body of the snake crusher, for the snake had been crushed. You see, death itself had been defeated. The Messiah reigns as king over humanity. And while they don't see him near his tomb, they saw him along the long road to Emmaus. In the upper room, they saw him ascend into heaven and complete his high priestly duties by sitting at the right hand of God. The disciples worship him and continually found themselves in the temple, blessing God. Hey, 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 I was too excited to keep this from you. I wanted to tell you right here in the middle of the episode <laughs> about a brand new partnership with a company called Bone Cafe. It's a great coffee company. I absolutely love coffee. And, and it's also a missionary ministry in Haiti. It makes it all the more better. So if you go to bonecafehaiti.com right now and you buy a 10 ounce bag using the promo code UNBOUND at checkout, then get this. You not only support their missionaries in Haiti, you not only support Bible Unbound, but you also get an incredible bag of Haitian grown coffee farm to cup for under $15. Again, it's B-O-N-K-A-F-E-Haiti.com. Bone Cafe, that's cafe with a K, Haiti.com. One more time, bonecafehaiti.com, cafe with a K. But of course, the link is in the show notes as always. You don't even have to know how to spell it. But also, I want to say a huge shout out to Ann Johnston, Amanda Hegum, and Jay for supporting us on Patreon. Everyone who does so is basically the reason why people like you and I can keep exploring together. But more than that, they're making this free for everyone involved. And so I can't thank you enough and neither can you. But okay, that's enough. Let's keep exploring. As you may have guessed from maybe the, I don't know, title of this episode or the t bunches of times where we talked about how Luke is aiming his gospel account to include all of humanity. <gasps> Luke is aiming his gospel account to include all of humanity. <laughs> this is actually kind of wild. You know, while I was doing research for this episode, I learned a lot about the historical context for Luke. I guess I would call it the historical context. I don't know if that's what you would actually call it. But anyway, for example, Luke's gospel is actually the closest thing we might have to what we would consider a biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, we talked about in Matthew how the gospels are not trying to do that. Well, Luke kind of is. Scholars call it the comprehensive gospel because it's so, I mean, you know, comprehensive. <laughs> you know, where Mark might write Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, Luke would recount the exact same story by saying Jesus healed a man whose right hand was withered with leprosy. 
The events in Luke are incredibly detailed and well-researched. Scholars believe that Luke was also written using eyewitness sources because all of the first-hand accounts we get of Luke being with people like Peter and Paul and Mary. It's also the longest gospel account we have by word count. In, in your Bibles, Matthew may have more chapters, but it turns out that Luke Acts is actually longer than any of Paul's epistles combined. It's incredibly well-organized, it's well-refined grammatically. All of this suggests that Luke's primary audience is everybody. <laughs> no, 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 it suggests that Luke's primary audience is Gentilian. And we, well, we actually know that his audience was a man named Theophilus, a super Greek name. Theophilus? Theophilus? I still don't know. Anyway, I'm gonna say Theophilus for the rest of my life, but he was a man who scholars presume to be a wealthy Gentile convert. He was probably a friend of Luke who hired him out to do this investigative research into the person, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Theophilus probably heard all the stories, believed that Jesus forgave him of his sins, but wanted the proof of a written account, and so he hired the sleuth, Luke. Sleuth, Luke, proof, I don't know. But we can venture to guess that Luke's gospel has all of humanity in mind, for a couple of reasons. The first reason of Luke to include all of humanity is his peculiar genealogy. It doesn't come right at the beginning of the book, but it comes right after his baptism. Right after God declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke then connects Jesus to Adam. This is interesting because Adam was considered the Son of God, the Son of Man for centuries, and now Luke comes along and essentially makes this claim that it's actually Jesus is the Son of God, the true Son of God, anyway. Making him not only the true Son of God, but also the true Son of Man? Maybe, perhaps, the true seed of the woman? Either way, it connects to Daniel or Ezekiel, which, if you haven't listened to those episodes, you should definitely go back and listen to those, because the Son of Man even has this whole other layer of nuance that connects all the way back to Adam. And you see, Matthew, Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham, remember? Also, Luke's gospel contains way more historical reference points than any other gospel. This is another reason why scholars would refer to it as the comprehensive gospel, but thematically it's really profound because it situates the gospel into this particular place and time, but that place and time is what was described at the beginning of this episode. It's hopeless, it's wandering, it's bleak, and here's the thing. You throw a dart at a timeline of human history, that's what you get. Hopeless, wandering, and bleak, especially depending on what angle you view it from. Really, if you view it from an angle void of God's presence. And so Luke's gospel enters into the human story right away. Finally, we can look at Luke's parables and contrast them to Matthew's parables to see that Luke really does have a more individual, human audience in mind. Whereas many of the parables may have the exact same content, the context and the reasoning for the parables really do lead the reader to different conclusions. Luke's parables are almost always about an individual's response to the kingdom of God, and they include people like Roman centurions, Jewish leaders, and Jewish laypeople. Whereas Matthew's parables are almost exclusively about the response of Jewish men and women 
to the kingdom that has come on earth. In that phrase, the kingdom of God brings along with it an entire narrative from the Old Testament that a Jewish audience would really be attuned to. We can, however, see that Luke does have a Jewish audience in mind. It may not be his primary audience like Theophilus would have been, but it's certainly there. And this is unlike Mark. You see, Matthew has a primarily Jewish audience in mind. Mark has a primarily Gentilian audience in mind. And Luke kind of has the best of both worlds. Let's just look at this one specific story that's not even included in Mark. And we see that Luke really does have a broad audience. It's the disciples on the road to Emmaus right after Jesus' resurrection. This is a clearly Jewish story, start to finish. Jesus even goes through the Old Testament, through Moses, on through the prophets, which is shorthand for saying the Tanakh. It's the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, and he tells these disciples that they all point to him. Huh. I wish that was turned into a podcast series. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, sure, but he knows that there will be both Gentile and Hebrew reading this. I just want to connect all of this for you in case you haven't quite gotten it just yet, which is totally fine. Because to keep Luke's primary audience, as both Jews and Gentiles in mind, it's extraordinarily important. For one, it tells us that Luke's gospel is the story of humanity, that the salvation process is the process of becoming human. But also, it's super important because when Jesus says to the lineage of Jacob in this gospel, believe in me, he's asking that the Hebrews believe that he is the prophesied Messiah. He's asking that they believe that his ways, his life, his miracles, his sermons all perfectly align to the God of their ancestors. The historic Jewish understanding of the coming Messiah would have included the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of Israel to God. But when Jesus says the exact same thing to a Gentile audience, believe in me, we can take it to mean something else. He's saying, believe that I have come to crush the head of the snake. Believe that I have brought about the forgiveness of sins. Look upon my death and see what I have done for you. Don't stand in disbelief. Don't stand in your sin, but believe. Believe that you are forgiven. Believe that through my death, you can be reconciled to God. That would require some sort of response. But that is why Luke would place such special emphasis on the worship of Jesus as Redeemer. And that's also why we can go through the entire Gospel of Luke and hear all of these allusions to the Old Testament snake crusher being righteous, just a Redeemer, a warrior, the defeater of death, a king, a priest, a prophet. We can hear all of that stuff without actually saying those words. That is why the Gospel of Luke needs to be in our Bibles today. It is the story of all of us. It is the story of the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of man, of humanity, to God. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next time.